0: are listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may
1: present everyone mature in Christ.
0: Take your Bible and turn to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 6. This will be our New Testament reading and sermon text. Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse twenty-five. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink; nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. may be seated.
1: Let's look to the Lord. In prayer again this morning, asking him for his help, his strength, his wisdom. Father, we bow before you this morning, again in the name of Jesus. O Spirit of God, how we plead with you this morning to take the words of Scripture, to implant them deeply into our hearts. For we know, O Spirit, that it is you who brings conviction. It is you who reproves the world of sin. It is you who urges us on the pathway of righteousness. It is you who carries our prayers along, even as the Son intercedes as our eternal high priest before the throne room of God. What a delight it is to be called yet again into your worship this Lord's Day. And so, as we devote ourselves to the study of your word, to the proclamation of your gospel, we ask for your help. Make us dependent upon you, O Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to do something a little unique this morning, and I want to start. Um, my introduction here this morning by asking you to turn in your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Now, of course, we need a little bit of context. We're not just going to jump right into Exodus 16 because we haven't been preaching or teaching through Exodus 16. But what, what is going on as you reach Exodus 16? Well, you've seen the people of Israel dramatically delivered. There's their salvation by God from the, the slavery that they experienced for 400 years in Egypt. They then crossed the Red Sea under the power of God. We could say that they were baptized through the Red Sea. On the other side of the Red Sea, there's corporate singing of worship. They gather together. They sing the song of Moses. At Marah, they have the waters sweetened miraculously by God through Moses. They find relief at a place called Elam. There's palm trees there. There's springs of water. And then they get to the wilderness of sin, and they now respond in a very disheartening way to God, the God who had delivered them, the God who had saved them, they now grumble against him and say, did you bring us out here to die? Did you save us only to destroy us? And so that brings us to chapter 16 because they had no food. And so how does God respond? He promises through Moses that he's going to give them food. He's going to give them manna and quail. So, look at verse 13 here in chapter 16 of Exodus. It says, In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. And then the next several verses, in verses 22 through 30, there was extra details given. on on how they were to gather the manna on the day before the Sabbath. So on a Friday they were to go and they were to gather extra so that they could properly observe their Sabbath rest on Saturday. Now look now to verse 31. It says, Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years Till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So there's this amazing provision of sustenance, of food by God for the people. And I want to point out a few things um, about this manna here. From this passage that we read here, and we see that the manna falls from heaven, but it only falls within the camp. It's not falling all over the world. It's falling within the camp. Who's it gathered by? It's gathered by everyone who's within the covenant community. So it's only those in the covenant community who are gathering this manna. How often are they gathering it? Early. Early in the day. And how often? Daily. So there's a daily early gathering. There's a perfect distribution of it for everyone who needs, depending on the size of their family. It's prepared by God for the nourishment of their bodies. And it contains within it a, we could say a wholesomeness or a sweetness that, that, that is not needed to be changed at all. It's, it's, it's suitable for the taste of all, young and old. What happens if they stored it up and they left it unused? It would turn bad. And as they looked at it, As they looked at this, because they didn't even know what it was, it's clear that there was no external beauty to it in comparison to all the food of the world. Nevertheless, they were commanded by God to put it away in a special pot, and he preserves it within the most holy place as a representation. And finally, it is graciously provided by God for 40 years, All the while that they're in the wilderness, he graciously provides to them this bread from heaven until when? Until they reach the land of promise. And that is all we're going to say right now from Exodus 16. And you may be wondering in your mind, what does that have to do with that text that Ron just read? Because we are going to be looking specifically at Matthew chapter 6 this morning. And if that's the question in your mind, what does Exodus 16 have to do with that chapter, you're just going to have to wait and see. So turn then back to Matthew 6, which is the first book of the New Testament. So we we're in the second book of the Old Testament. Now we are in the first book of the New Testament. The Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they both testify Christ Christ is is the pinnacle, the chief figure of Scripture. Now, if you're here about a month ago, I um, came out of the bullpen, so to speak, and I did a pinch-hit sermon, and that was on Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. And Pastor Barry had told me that he was so excited about continuing to preach in 1 Corinthians 14 That I decided that it would be better to let him do that next week. And so we're going to continue on from Matthew 6 because the next section of verses here, 25 through 34, really go hand in hand with what I preached last time. So let's read here verse 24, which was from the last sermon. Verse 24 of Matthew 6 is the conclusion to what Jesus spoke in that section, which probably in your Bible may be subtitled, Lay Up Treasures in Heaven. And in verse 24, this was Jesus' summation. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that was the, the thrust of what we looked at, that you must have a singular heart. And the singular heart's going to worship one of two things, and that's going to be God or the things of this world. And so we saw this eternal danger. Jesus says this is an eternal danger if your mindset is to accumulate the things of this world. Your soul is at stake. And so now we're going to add on to that because we're going to examine what we would call a corresponding danger, and that is as Jesus goes on to further explain that passage about the danger of when we are anxious about or when we're worried about things. Things. You know, when you're called to follow Christ, and if you, if you believe what he has said, and, and you start to, to turn from the pursuit of things, desirous to have that, that single eye that is looking only to Christ, you're going to face hardship. And inevitably, the Christian is faced with this, with this question in their heart Does God really care about me? Does God really care about me? And that is what Jesus here is setting out to answer. Now, as we go through life, and I'm going to describe this the wilderness of life, and, and I actually have the sermon titled this morning, Peace in the Wilderness. So as we're going through the wilderness of life, I'd like you to think in your mind this morning about this year, 2023, what the experiences of this year have been for you. You know, we're in October already. We've only got a few months left, and this year will be done. So we're not going to go too far back. We're just going to go through this year. And I'd like you to consider in your mind what types of things this year have caused anxiety or worry in your heart. And I wrote down a few. This is not a comprehensive list. Maybe you've worried about really basic things, the ability to eat, the ability to to have plentiful water. Maybe you've encountered physical issues in 2023 with your body. Maybe you've suffered or um, received a surprising or unexpected medical diagnosis. Maybe you've had challenges within your family. Maybe you've struggled with your finances this year. Surely, as we've seen inflation increase all the costs, maybe that's been a great trouble for you. Maybe you've had difficulties with cars, the transportation that we use, relationship difficulties. Perhaps you have an aging loved one, and that's brought a lot of anxiety to your heart. Maybe it could be something as simple as information overload. We're bombarded with news. That can bring anxiety. What about housing concerns? It's very difficult these days with the rising costs to find adequate housing. Maybe you had plans for this year that you were so certain were going to happen, and they were frustrated They didn't happen. They didn't come to pass. Or maybe there's just been what we could broadly define as overwhelming circumstances in your life. Perhaps you have a fear of death or have had a fear of death this year. Maybe if you're a little bit older, maybe you have struggled with the thought of a wayward child, a child who grew up exposed to the faith and has walked away from the faith. There's all sorts of stress. We can even have stress in ministry. We can be anxious coming up to preach or to teach or to teach children or to minister here in the house of God in many different ways. And so what Jesus is addressing here, as we just think of those things in our mind, what is Jesus addressing here? He is preemptively already answering the question that his disciples are surely going to wonder as they think of serving God with that that whole heart, putting aside the cares of this world, I'm not going to pursue after money. My heart's desire is God, not the things of this world. And so what questions are going to come into one's mind? Well, maybe questions like, hey, Jesus, don't we have pressing needs in our lives that deserve our, our utmost, our focused attention? Or maybe just the simple question, hey, Jesus, don't we have families to provide for Or maybe a more spiritual question, Jesus, how can we possibly get through life if we are to first and primarily think about our souls? And so Jesus here is answering that question before the disciples can even articulate. And it's not just those disciples here on the Sermon on the Mount. It's all disciples. All followers of Christ are going to think these types of things. And so he's going to give them a very simple response. And this is a wise response. This is a compassionate response, and and he's going to say it three times. And essentially, his response is, stop being anxious. Stop being anxious. Stop being anxious, or stop worrying. And within that statement that Jesus makes here in these verses, we'll note that this is a repeatable action. This isn't something that we deal with once, and anxiety goes away, and we never worry about anything again in our whole lives. This is going to creep up in our hearts. And he says, and when that happens, stop being anxious. Stop being anxious. Well, it's very easy to say, and so, of course, Jesus, in his wisdom, he's going to explain why we should stop being anxious. What confidence do we have to no longer be anxious in our hearts? Well, it's important to note then, if that's his response, it's important to go back and say, who is his audience? Who is Jesus speaking to? And of course, he is speaking on this Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of it, he goes up onto a mountain, and who does he take? He takes his disciples. He's speaking here in this sermon to people who profess to follow after him. And so he's speaking to the people on the mountain. And he's also speaking to all those who continue on in the Christian faith over the next, you know, until he comes again. So we're 2,000 years later after he's preached that sermon, and he's speaking to us through these same words. And so that's the audience. He's not speaking necessarily to the world at large. He's speaking here to people who name the name of Christ. And that's an important aspect that we're going to come back to a little bit later but if you think back to what I had preached last time about, you cannot serve God and the things of this world. You cannot serve God and money. The proper response of that, if we, if we take those words and we properly respond, then what are we going to do? We're going to stop pursuing after things. We're going to stop pursuing after accumulating wealth and, and having that the obsession of our life. And so with that response then... As we abandon the things of this world, now Jesus compassionately speaks to the disciples and he says, if that's your response, and it should be your response, he says, I don't want you to be filled with anxiety at how your heavenly Father is going to meet the true needs of your life. And so what does he say? This is sort of his, his holistic statement at the beginning of, of this section here. He says, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about how you are going to live. There's this sense of of Jesus saying there's more to life than the meal you're going to eat later today. There's more to life than the accumulation of things. Now, of course, we must always keep the passages of Scripture that we have in context. And, And who is Jesus speaking immediately here too? He's speaking to people who live in an agrarian society. So as he gives these examples of, of food and water and clothing, those are things that oftentimes we don't really worry about, do we? We're just worried about the next time that we're going to eat. And it's been, you know, only a few hours and we and we are ready to eat again. It wasn't so in the days of Jesus. Many of the people who lived in these towns, especially in Galilee, they didn't know when they were going to eat again. They didn't know where their food was going to come from. They knew the effort that was required to to prepare even food to make. Or they may have had to make the decision about, I may have to go without food so that I can get some clothing or I might freeze to death. We're not often faced with those types of situations in our hearts, in our lives. We often don't think about the lack of water. We're not typically digging wells because the wells that we have ran dry, and we're worried about um, dying of thirst. But this was a real concern in Jesus' day, and so he's speaking to that. But, it, but what Jesus speaks of here is merely an example of the life, and that's why I gave all those examples at the beginning of the things that plague us in the wilderness of life. And as we consider then the time that we live in, now that we are into the 2000s, and, and we live in this Western world, has the prosperity of the Western world done away with anxiety? No, it hasn't. So we can see then his words are not just to people who are living in desolate conditions of food and water, they apply to everyone who has these same feelings of anxiety. Prosperity brings a different, or we could say it brings its own type of debilitating fear, crippling anxiety. After all, death comes to the prosperous just as much as it comes to the poor. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says that, to everything there is a season, and that includes death. Death comes for all. Well, let's then ask this question, what is this anxiety here that Jesus is speaking about? And we should understand that this is something that comes upon us in varying degrees. So maybe you're a little anxious Maybe you're a lot anxious, but what is anxiety? Well, this is varying degrees of of apprehension, of worry, undue concern, distress, fretting, or perhaps dread. This is a mind that is divided, fragmented, distracted, If you remember from the previous passage that I preached last time, it is an eye that is not singularly focused upon God. Do you remember the story in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus comes to dine with Mary and Martha and Lazarus? And Martha is worried. She's worried. And Jesus tells her, you shouldn't be worried. Your eye is not singularly focused. Mary is pursuing after that which is actually best, holy, and righteous. But that's what this, this, this anxiety is that Jesus speaks of here. This is an anxiety that could cause insomnia, maybe premature aging, or even a paralysis of action. I, I just can't do anything because I'm so crippled with worry about this situation. That's what Jesus is talking about. And so he asks and answers the question, why should we stop being anxious about our lives? And there's this presumption that we are, and oftentimes we are. And so Jesus is asking and answering, why should we stop being anxious about our lives? Because life, he says, is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. And he goes on to give two examples that I would like to look at in this passage. The first example is we could just say the birds of the air, and this comes in verses 26 and 27. And so after Jesus tells them that life is more than food, after the body is more than clothing, he goes on to give example number one. He says, look at the birds of the air. Look. You know, maybe there was some there that he could even point to. Look at these birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Birds aren't out planning; They're not out doing the hard work of a farmer. They merely exist. Now, this doesn't mean that they're not industrious. Animals aren't lazy. But he says, look, they're not out there doing what you do. And he says, and yet your heavenly Father, we're going to come back to that phrase as well, but he says, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And so we see in this section, and quite often in Jesus' teaching, that he, he gives these rhetorical questions quite often that you know the answer to, they knew the answer to. And so he asks this question, are you not of more value than birds? Than sparrows, robins, crows, whatever bird may be in your mind, aren't you of more value than them? And of course the answer is yes. Of course humans are. And he's taking their minds back to that creation. They know the, the creation story from Genesis. They know this idea of the Imago day that man and man alone is created in the image of God. He, mankind has the likeness of God. Man rep, he replicates who God is. Of course, Adam did it in a perfect sense before the fall. We do it in a tainted sense because of our sin. But do the birds do that? Do the birds reflect the image of God? No. No other creature does. It is only mankind, and that is why man was created last. Man is the chief glory of creation. He's the pinnacle of God's creation. He is by far the greatest value creation. And and, and so Jesus says, aren't you greater than these birds? Of course, the answer is yes. And so then the very easy conclusion that he gives then is that since he takes care of them... These lesser valued creatures. And we heard that in what Jordan read this morning, especially in verse nine of Psalm 147, if he takes care of these smaller, lesser creatures, won't he take care of you? Now, of course, we would all nod our heads and say, yes, of course, Jesus. Yes, of course. But he's going to have to keep building on this. But this is his first example. And then the second part of that first example, though, is this reality that we know, we say we believe, is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the affairs of our life. And knowing that he's over the affairs of our life, that he has appointed the day of our death, he's appointed how many seconds we will live, is there anything that we can do that we could add a second to our life? And of course, the answer is no. Well, he gives a second example. So this was his first example, and he's pointing to to nature that is around them. This is a great um, illustration of effective preaching by Jesus. He's taking things that these people are familiar with, that they can see around them, and he applies it to their lives. But his second example then is in verses 28 through 30, the lilies of the field. And so in verse 28, he says, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And so now he gives them an example from the ground. So he says the birds of the air and and the plants of the ground, but he specifically points to to lilies, the lilies of the field that is right around them. And he says, why are you anxious about clothing? Why are you anxious about food and and drink? Your father is going to provide for you there. Why are you worried? Why are you anxious about clothing? Let me give you another example. And so he points to, to the lilies of the field. And he says in the same way that the, the sparrows or whatever bird it is, is, the same way that they don't plant the food that they eat, a lily is not working sort of as a weaver. They just, they're there and they are arrayed by God in great glory. And he says the glory, the intricacy of the beauty of these flowers, he says it's, it's greater than, than Solomon. And of course Solomon, who was a king in the history of Israel, Um, was the king when Israel reached its greatest peak of glory. It was under him that the temple was built. It was under him that their empire was expanded the widest. Silver was so plentiful that that they paved the streets with it. There was so much gold. The the opulence, uh, when the, the queen of Sheba comes, what does she say? She says, my breath is taken away because whatever I heard about this place was only half of the glory of his kingdom. And Jesus says you take all of that and it still doesn't compare to these little flowers here in the ground and the intricacy, the intricacy of their beauty that God has arrayed them with. But he goes on to, to, to further expand on that example because when he says here that if God so clothes the grass of the field, you should realize there he's, he's talking about the same thing. So he's still talking about these flowers He said, but today it's alive. Tomorrow it's thrown into the oven. What what is he getting at there? He's talking about how expendable those things are. You know, we, we cut our grass every year. We have beautiful flowers that grow on our properties. And they go away. And he says the reality is, is that stuff, it can just be thrown into the fire and burned. It's an expendable type of thing. Who's not? God's children are not. God's children are not expendable things. They're not expendable creatures. And so he's going to basically reiterate the same question. If God takes care of these flowers, will he not take care of you? Of course, the answer is again, yes. Of course he will. Will God cast aside his children just as easily as we might cast some grass or some dead flowers onto a bonfire? No. So he asks these these questions. The first one is is the, the of course answer, and the second one is the of course not answer. And so these are the two examples that he follows up with so that they might understand how he could make a statement saying stop being anxious. Because he's essentially saying that if God who is sovereign over all, the creator of this earth, if he cares for the smallest things, the feeblest things of creation, if he beautifully adorns things as transient as flowers, then he can say to them, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear, which we see in verse 31. And he goes on, to essentially say, that type of worry, that type of fretting is what the Gentiles do. Now, that's a little bit of a a stranger expression to us today, but we have to remember who Jesus is speaking to here. Jesus is speaking to Jews. He has a Jewish audience here, and so in the context of who he's speaking to then, what did the Gentiles represent? They represented the pagan, unbelieving world, whereas up to that point, there was not the light of God's revelation all over uh, the Gentile world. And we're seeing that in Acts as we study on Wednesday night, as, as the gospel and the light of God's revelation begins to go out to the Gentile world. But when he says this is what the Gentiles do, he's referring to people who are outside the kingdom. They're not followers of God. They do not profess Jesus Christ. And so you might use a different word, maybe the worldlings. He's saying the worldlings live for the present. They chase the things of this world. They're worried about the here and now because in their minds nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And essentially, with this expression that Jesus uses here, he's taking this idea of anxiety, he's taking this, this, this notion of worry, and he says when we, when we fall to that in our hearts, it's the equivalent of idolatry. It's an idolatrous heart. It's, some, it's a heart that is trusting in something else besides God. And so he says, don't be like that. Don't be like that because your heavenly Father knows everything that you need. He knows the food and the drink and the clothing and everything else that you truly need. And so whatever debilitating anxiety exists in the world and maybe you've talked about that before with coworkers. maybe they've been so stressed and worried about issues and they just don't have an answer or even a category for some of the things going on in their lives, but their debilitating anxiety should not be the church's anxiety. It shouldn't be. And why? Because the answer is, is that the people of God, they possess the steadfast promises of God and they can be assured certain care because of their loving heavenly father. And I said we were going to come back to that phrase, and I want to ask you that question this morning. When Jesus says your heavenly father, he's making a very distinct point. And so the question must be asked: Is he your heavenly father? Because these words of Jesus don't mean anything to you if he's not your heavenly father. Is he God, your heavenly Father. And that's where the the sense of the gospel message of Christianity comes in. For it's the law of God that is meant to, to, to provoke us to see that we have a problem. The law which is given all throughout the Word of God, but you're familiar with some of the common laws that God's given for all His creatures to have no other gods before Him. Don't steal don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't covet what other people have. And it's in this very sermon that Jesus goes on to further condemn those of us who think, "Why well, I haven't physically murdered anybody. And he says, have you ever looked on someone else with hatred in your heart? Because in God's eyes, you've murdered them. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust in your heart, he says, because you've committed adultery with her in your heart already. And he goes on to, see, to reveal to his disciples in this sermon that you can perfectly conform to the outward sense of God's law and have a rotten heart. And so this sermon further illustrated just how evil our hearts are. And if God is a just judge, and he is, a just judge will punish. And so there's, there's this realization that as the law comes to our hearts, where I have failed in many ways and many times that I have a problem because the just judge is going to punish me. And that's where the Spirit of God, it's when the Spirit of God takes that reality and it crushes my heart. It makes me say, I'm in trouble, I need someone to save me. And that's where the good news of the gospel comes in. It's only when a person is brought to that sense of where I need to be saved, where the good news is offered that there is salvation, that there is forgiveness of sins, to be found in Jesus Christ. And when you profess the name of Christ, when you repent and turn away from your sins, you are then, by God's grace, you are brought into the kingdom, you are adopted as a son and a daughter of God, and then you can say with confidence in your heart that God is my heavenly Father. And it's then that those words do apply to you. And so if God is not your heavenly father this morning, I urge you to repent and to believe on Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul, for the forgiveness of your sins. But maybe your answer to that question, is he your heavenly father? Maybe it's yes. And if the answer is yes, then what should we do? We ought to give glory to God. Is what Jesus is saying here when he says, don't be anxious. Don't be worried about life, is he saying? And now this is your reason to sit around and do nothing. Can we be idle? Can we be lazy? No. He's not destroying any um, truths throughout Scripture that, that encourage hard, industrious work. Prudent planning for the future, according to Bible standards, is right. Corrosive, self tormenting anxiety is wrong. And so it's not a reason to do nothing. It's not a reason to live anxiously. Is it a reason to exchange anxiety for prayer? Yes. And every time that anxiety wells up within our heart, the answer is prayer. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man named George Mueller, but he lived in the 1800s. He was in Bristol, England, and he was very passionate about the orphans. Orphans were a a massive problem during England at that time. And so over the course of his life, he ran five different orphanages and he ministered and and, and helped 10,000 plus orphans over the course of his life. But what was really remarkable was not those numbers that I just gave you, but what was remarkable about was his disposition toward how his heavenly father would provide for their needs. And quite often, they would sit at the breakfast table, him and a large group of children, not knowing whether their bread, where their milk, where their water was going to come from. And so what did he do? Did he sit there fretting, filled with anxiety? No, he prayed. He prayed to his heavenly Father, and time and time again, the Lord answered his prayer and brought the provisions that they so desperately needed. His heavenly Father knew what they needed and so he turned from anxiety to prayer and that's what we ought to do as well when we truly believe that our heavenly father knows our needs and will care for them then it's that it's then when we come back to that singular eye that eye that is focused upon god's kingdom and his standard of righteousness so if we're going to have a true essence you know, earlier in the sermon, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is how we get there. It's having that singular eye. In 1 Chronicles 16.11, it says, Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. And what is the promise that Jesus gives here in his sermon? He says those that seek after God in that way, those who pursue after him in that way are going to provide going to be provided everything that they actually need. Maybe not want, but you will receive what you need. But there's a catch, and surely you may have been wondering, like, it feels like there's a a catch to this, and and I would say to you there is. And the catch is that, and I referred to it earlier, is that this is a daily battle, perhaps even more frequent than daily, but you know what I mean. This is a daily battle. Because it's hard. This is hard not to be troubled in our hearts over the mistakes and sins of yesterday. It's hard not to worry about the troubles of tomorrow. It's hard not to be filled with anxiety about what may happen in the future. But when we do that, what are we doing? We, we are. We are. When we're dwelling or focusing on the past. Or on future difficulties, we are distracting from the responsibilities and the duties that we have today. Today, on October 8th. And if we succumb to those worries, the worries of tomorrow, I don't know what's gonna happen on Thursday, it demonstrates clearly, it doesn't matter what we said with our mouth, but it demonstrates that we are not depending upon our Heavenly Father now. You're not promised Thursday. Today, is the day that God has given you breath to live. But since God has not promised any of us a trouble-free life, and I don't need to convince you of that, what is it then that we truly need? And now this is where we're going to sort of come back to Exodus. How will we look only to be given our daily bread? You remember that from the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread? daily bread, not give us next Sunday our bread, give us today our daily bread. How are we going to do that? How are we going to find peace in the wilderness? And the answer is through manna. It's through manna. So thinking of that that manna, the bread from heaven in Exodus 16, what did that point forward to? What did that picture, what did that typify? It typified the bread And that's a capital B, bread, because it's referring to Jesus, the bread who came down from heaven. And what did he declare in John 6, 35? He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so when it is every time that we are crippled or plagued by anxiety, what do we need? We need to receive the spiritual manna of Christ again. There's this, there's this presence, these promises um, of Christ that, that fall from heaven. He's the exalted Christ reigning upon his throne. And his promises and his presence, they fall from heaven through his word, carried by his spirit. And now as we look again to that example of, of all the things that manna represented to the people of Israel, it, where does it fall? It falls to those within the camp to those who are gathered as part of God's church. It's gathered and enjoyed by all who are in that covenant community. There's not a single one of Christ's followers who can go without this spiritual man. You can't turn your nose up at this. You need it. And is there not a wonderful principle here in this comparison that this delight, is to be gathered early in the day, early in the morning. There's this principle embedded within Scripture of meeting God, desiring after God early in the day. And Christ perfectly distributes this to everyone as they have needs and as they call out to him and seek after it. It's prepared not for the the physical, not so that our stomach feels full, It's provided to us for the spiritual nourishment of our souls. And what does it contain? It contains wholesomeness. It contains sweetness that is unchangeably wonderful for all of God's believers. But there is this sense as well, there's this warning that if we store up God's truths, but we leave them unused or we leave them unbelieved, What happens then? Our our hearts are going to forget the goodness of God and they are going to turn away from that eye toward God. They're going to turn toward bad, toward anxious thoughts, and even to pagan living. The truths that are contained within within this word, they have no natural external beauty. The unbelieving world will look on these things that Christ has told us and said, that's foolish. You need to trust yourself. you got to get out of this jam on your own. But the resurrected, ascended, exalted Christ has been preserved by God just as that manna was. He's been preserved by God at the right hand of the throne of God as an emblem to us as victory over death and also a demonstration of the futility of the world's ways. Finally, This is given to us day by day. It's a gracious provision from God until we reach our place of rest. It's not a physical land of Canaan like the Israelites were marching toward. But what does that land of Canaan represent? Just as the manna represented something, the land represented that eternal dwelling place with God where man and God shall dwell forever In righteousness and holiness and the beauty of Christ, arraign the whole heavens. And so there's this wonderful sense that we need manna every time that our hearts are filled with anxiety. Because, you know, when you read a passage like this and you hear these words from Jesus, don't be anxious. One, they're familiar words, you've probably heard them before. But they're words that are so easy to agree with in our minds. Oh, yes, of course that's true. But our actions often do not follow what our minds say that we believe in. So we may say we believe in this, but our actions often say, no, I'm actually usually pretty anxious about things. So every day we're faced with many opportunities to be overcome by anxiety. The world will make sure of that. And so I want you to think back then to that initial question where I asked you to think of those things that have brought anxiety to your heart so far this year. And how are you going to respond to the anxiety of today? How are you going to respond tomorrow? Are you going to respond by hearing the manna of Christ, that, where you hear his promises, where you, where you sense his presence by storing them up for later? Well, that's great. That's for Later and you're never drawing any spiritual application from them for for today? Will you respond to hearing the words of the bread of life by despising them? For that is what the Israelites did. They despised this food, and they said, we would rather have the food we ate when we were in slavery in Egypt. And maybe you would be tempted in your heart to say, I would rather go back to the spiritual slavery that I was in. And and maybe I had prosperity then in the world before God saved me, just as he saved the Israelites, before God saved me from the pit of hell. Maybe you will despise them. But I pray that instead of those two responses, that you will truly eat of God's provision, that you will be able to confidently say in your heart, as the psalmist did, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How is it that we're going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? How will we, how will we be transformed from people of little faith? Notice he called them here, O oh, you of little faith. How will we go from little faith to great faith? It's going to be by believing the words of Christ, by daily seeking after him. Instead of the things of this world, we're going to gladly exchange our anxiety for prayer. Prayer filled trust in our Heavenly Father, and this is a rinse and repeat, repetitive action that we're going to need to do over and over and over because He's provided it to us. And both of those things go hand in hand with truly then storing up treasure in heaven from the previous verses. One author wrote, How happy are they who are walking after the Lord, though in a wilderness. So you can walk through the wilderness of this world and you can be crippled with anxiety or you can experience the happiness that Christ promises to those who truly seek after him first. I pray that the Lord impresses these truths to our hearts today, tomorrow, and may we come back to his manna time and time and time again. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for the simple, plain truths of your word. And we also confess how often we fail to truly embrace and believe them. But you have given to us your Holy Spirit, for you are a kind, compassionate, loving, heavenly Father. And so I pray today, Lord, that you will provoke each one of us to truly follow after you, to set aside those concerns and anxieties of our hearts and to instead to consume the manna of of what you have given to us for our spiritual good. I pray, O Lord, also if there are any among us today who cannot say with confidence that you are their heavenly Father, that you would do a mighty work in their heart, that you would draw them from bondage of sin just as you have with us, and give to them spiritual newness of life in Jesus Christ. We ask all things, O Lord, in accordance with your will. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.